Welcome to another episode of GraphQL Radio. My name is Andreas Heiberg, and I am the engineering manager here at Stelly. Today, we're continuing our Building in Public series. For this episode, I'm joined by three of my colleagues to discuss how we deployed the biggest change to our system since the company was founded. Internally, we have for months been calling it One Edge Provider, or OEP for short. This is where I would normally say that this has been a lot of fun to get this out to customers. But to be honest, the story of One Edge Provider wasn't all smooth sailing. We learned a lot and we're happy with the outcome, but we had to endure a lot of difficult moments. Let's start with a round of introductions. Perhaps Dominic, as the project lead, you could kick us off. Yeah, all right. Hey, I'm Dominic Patrick. I am a backend engineer uh, for the last, let's say, seven to eight years. Uh, I've been at Stellate for roughly 11 months or almost 12 months. My one year anniversary is coming up, I think, on the 22nd. I have been specialized in backend engineering since my Microsoft days when Wunderlist got bought uh, and uh, have been in that space since then. I've enjoyed building backends that actually deliver a ton of traffic uh, to to customers that sit in the critical path. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Awesome. Stefan, how about you? Hi, I'm Stefan. I'm a backend engineer at Stellate. I've basically been doing backend for my whole career, so for the last eight years, I think, and I barely ever touched the front end. I'm working for Stellate for a bit over a year by now. I've been mostly doing TypeScript beforehand, and uh, with the upcoming project that we're about to talk about, I started my transition towards Rust, uh, which was an exciting journey. And yeah, I guess that's it. And how are you, Thomas? Hi, I'm Thomas, not a backend engineer. I'm also a front-end engineer in Fullstack with in the past maybe a bit more front-end focus even. I've been here at Stellate for uh, one and one year and six, seven months uh, or something. Similar to Stefan, actually, I've been mainly focused on doing JavaScript and TypeScript in the past. And for me also, the, the One Edge Provider project was the first like real chance for me to get my hands dirty with Rust, which uh, was an amazing journey. Yeah, sounds good. Let's kick this off then, guys. Yeah, I was thinking we could start by talking way, way, way back in the day, giving some context on how still it came to be back when it was called GraphCDN. You know, there's a deep, deep history, and I guess maybe Thomas would be best to talk about this, around why the stuff that we had was there and why we felt it was necessary to change it, right? So, Thomas, can you tell us a little bit about L1, L2, L3, Rust, TypeScript, all the different questions <laughs> that come in here? Uh, GraphCDN back in the day, uh, how it came to be was essentially even before, like way before I joined, it was Tim and then Tim and Max kind of like sitting in an apartment and hacking stuff together and making shit work. That was how it came to be. And that is also how the first kind of major version of our CDN layer came into existence. And it was built on uh, not just one cloud provider, but actually two, which were Fastly and Cloudflare. And you might wonder why two? Why couldn't they just do just Fastly or just Cloudflare or just something else? And there were pretty good reasons for it, to be fair. Both platforms at the time kind of had limitations that didn't allow Max and Tim to like fully build everything on one provider. For example, Fastly offered uh, the super fast purging uh, that was kind of necessary in order to avoid reading stale data after cache purges. But it didn't really support a, a JavaScript runtime at the time. It's still, I believe it's still in beta today. And whereas much of the GraphQL ecosystem is written in JavaScript and both Tim and Max were 
uh, rather JavaScript engineers than uh, Rust engineers. So that's where Cloudflare came in. Also, what Cloudflare offered, what Fastly at the time didn't, was a good storage solution. But Cloudflare has KB, which Fastly at the time didn't really have something that could compete with that. And that was basically they took uh, both providers and, and like meshed them together into a set of what we then call different layers. We had the first layer, which was Fastly, and actually also a second layer that was again Fastly. The purpose of those layers was basically rewriting post to get requests. So that, that, that's basically the magic sauce behind uh, how we cache GraphQL. We rewrite posts to get requests. At least that's what we're doing now. And then there was a third layer, which was living in Cloudflare, which was then doing all the actual caching logic and connecting that with the config that the user stored via the estelate and then actually sent uh, the request to the, the origin server. So that's a very summarized origin story of how our initial uh, version of uh, that came to be. I like that. That's a very good summary. Talking about, we had this great system using three different layers and we started to ponder maybe changing it. When did those conversations start? I'm not even sure who's best here. Thomas, you obviously have a lot of background, but maybe Stefan also knows. When did we start talking about removing all these layers? When I started on my first day, I think I had a get to know Stellate call with him. And he was like, yeah, yeah, this is, this is like a Frankenstein architecture. Like this won't stick around forever. I think it was always clear that this is not the best solution. And there were always like also with this way of um, uh, doing three different layers, there were limitations which Max and Tim were very much aware of. So I think it was clear from the very beginning that this wasn't something that would last, I don't know, the next five to 10 years. At some point, we needed to go back and invest into a more scalable and like unified uh, architecture. I can't actually recall when we actually started to think about investing time into that. I believe it was around actually the time when Stefan joined, uh, where it got, got more and more concrete and we actually spent more time also playing around with, with Rust more. The Fastly layers were always written in Rust. Actually, in that sense, Dom is actually has, has been around longer as, uh, as Dom has, has been doing some, some uh, freelance work, if I recall, on that Rust layer even before I joined. So we started playing around more with, with Rust and seeing what is possible, what, what things are missing currently, what would we need to build in order to move to Fastly. We also thought about what, what would you need in order to move to Cloudflare, but it was I don't know. I don't know how structured it was. It was kind of something that ran up over time. I can't recall when we actually kicked it off as a project. Yeah, I do remember that it was floating around as an idea, I think without the name one at provider when I joined, which was in June, I think. Basically, when we renamed, I think there was the rename was done in the first week when I joined. And I remember that we were around in Austin for, for the conference. The, GraphQL foundation that it had to be delayed because of the whole COVID situation. And then we were around there. And while we were all together in there, we were also discussing how to move forward, what kind of people we need to hire and where to look out for. And during that discussion, we definitely had an idea that we need more like Rust and Rust infrastructure-ish engineers joining us so that we could go into that direction thinking about moving it together. Interestingly, a decision that we also later revised to actually compare where to move to, which I think is actually quite interesting story to it, that we initially were like, okay, so there's definitely the need, we need to move like to Rust in order for us to consolidate onto a single edge provider. And then later on, we actually did our due diligence of like figuring out whether we actually need to do that, whether we could also move everything to TypeScript, keep the mix around, whatever. And that was only done I think Dom even pushed for that. I mean, yeah, there was this in here. 
that was the Barcelona outside this year. Yeah. And in the meantime, we basically were just like working towards it. I know that Thomas was like migrating some of our code base already over. So we had that basically laying around in two languages, the same functionality without even moving everything over. And then at some point we said like, okay, this needs to become a real project. This is nothing we can just like do on the side while we were yachting out what our company needs to do in terms of like features and product. You mentioned, Dom, the offsite in Barcelona. And I guess that's where we in earnest started calling this one edge provider and starting actually pushing for it. So I guess, can you take us back to that time? We were having very heated debates about whether we should use Rust and TypeScript, whether we should be on Cloudflare or Fastly. What kind of was the deciding factor in the end? There's a common theme when talking about Rust, which is usually, well, it's very performant and uh, it does, uh, it gives you automatic, I don't know, like latency improvements and stuff like that, right? So I think the original intent uh, back in the day to add a little bit context to, to that was to move everything to Fastly because they started building the features that we needed. Like back in the day, it was called object stores and then uh, they renamed it to KVs recently so that, that the feature set was there and that uh, Rust would just be better. That was like an inherent thing about Rust that it would be better than TypeScript for the specific job, right? And then when and examining these assumptions, I challenged these uh, and, and said, well, but it's not really Rust. Like, yes, it is written in Rust, but it is web uh, assembly in the end, right? So there's a, there's a huge difference between writing pure Rust binaries and how they behave and just transporting it to WebAssembly. That started a cascade of, well, let's look into Cloudflare versus Fastly in earnest, right? Like, let's look into the specifics. Let's see if the purge times are still slow on, on Cloudflare, for example, right? What are plans that Cloudflare has going forward? Maybe that fits better into our into our roadmap. What about durable objects? We wanted to build rate limiting and, and similar stuff uh, at the time, right? And we thought about, well, durable objects sounds like a great idea to use for, for rate limiting. So they have a lot of stuff. And Fastly has... Uh, arguably the faster tech in terms of latency. And so we started comparing back and forth and uh, it ultimately broke down to, well, Fastly is Rust more or less. They do have JavaScript as Thomas mentioned, but Rust is really their first and foremost SDK that they support because most of the Fastly infrastructure is written in Rust and they're mostly Rust people as well. And Cloudflare is definitely JavaScript slash TypeScript and there could be a path forward for us to migrate everything to uh, TypeScript instead, right? So it, it broke down to, well, well, this is a pretty big decision for the company company to make, right? Because you're, it's not saying that we will do only Rust or only TypeScript in the future, right? But it is the core product that we would migrate to one or the other, which has impact on the business. So the impact or the, the decision in the end was made based on a bunch of factors, I would say. But in general, the engineering team agreed that Rust is the better tech going forward um, in terms of maintaining complex systems. There is a, like, if, if you have a static compiler, static type system, it gives you a lot in terms of confidence, like changing a little bit of code and um, seeing the impact that it has right on, on your code base is something that Rust does very well if you go over the hump. Then the tech that Fastly offers, just the pure latencies of starting up the WebAssembly binary are so much better. I think it's like 10x or something compared to Cloudflare. That was also a huge factor. And then there were a bunch of minor factors that I don't need to go into detail here. That's like the rough outline of, well, in the end, we said we go with Fastly here because they also want a partnership and uh, and are pretty good at supporting us at the moment. Yeah, this was basically my first week at Stelly making this big decision. And obviously I couldn't provide any input, but it was very fascinating to see this discussion in my first week. 
And so that's awesome. So we decided that we were going to go with Fastly and we were going to go with Rust. What happened then? Like, well, how do we actually go about doing this uh, very complicated project? Yeah, so how, like, it was already said that we had a bunch of Rust code already lying around, which was a lot of the core logic, like how to compute cache keys, basically, for the requests. And that, of course, was eight months or not, not maybe, yeah, but a lot, of, a lot of time has passed in between, right? So you had these chunks. Then you needed to port the core routing logic, let's say, like how the requests and how the errors flow through the system. And that was like a mapping between the callback-based way that JavaScript tends to do things, or at least our, call, uh, our code base, and the way that Rust uh, doesn't like to do that in, in many ways. And uh, that was like the first step getting like the skeleton of this project of this code base right and doing like a top-down proof of concept something goes through the system and it looks correct kind of way that was a lot of going back and forth obviously between the code bases and <laughs> making sure that i understand what javascript is doing in many instances because i'm not a typescript engineer i've never been a typescript engineer which is an interesting position to be in if you look uh, i'm a professional rust engineer so i i looked a lot at TypeScript in depth for the first time and uh, learned a lot about how TypeScript handles certain things and how unexpected things can happen in between, which is very different from uh, Rust, where things are usually explicit. Not a lot of unexpected things happen if you're if you're deep enough in, in Rust. So yeah, that was the very first step, and then pulling in more people as time passes and uh, the skeleton stands for for the project was. Uh, was a challenge, definitely. But this is where we started out. Yeah, I think what's worth mentioning here is we had some ported code laying around already. And obviously our main product evolved in the meantime. We found bugs, we added features, whatever. Um, so some of those utilities that we ported were actually touched on the TypeScript code, which is in hindsight, <laughs> not the best idea because now we had like implementations that weren't kept along 100%. So what Dom actually did while going through it um, was annotating a code in our code base was like, hey, this portion here is actually ported, checking that back, making sure best he could to figure out that the code is actually in line and then annotating um, on the function declarations like, hey, this one is ported. So you knew if you would now touch that code, you want to make sure that you also jump into the Rust code and do the same change there or adjustment there so that you keep it in sync. And I think that that helped us uh, eventually to make sure that we have A, everything ported and B, that we can like, backport some of those changes, not really backporting, but like cross-porting. And that was used in a couple of occasions where we found like, okay, so we just built this. Do we actually need to backport this as well? And then most likely the, the answer was yes. And then uh, we did it in there as well. So yeah, learning here, make sure to do that from the very beginning. So usually you don't want to have that code laying side by side for so long. Uh, so if you start building it out, right, it's it's like you, ha you don't really have anything and you just start comparing code, writing a few lines. And uh, of course, you have to think about, well, how do I get to anything at a, at a certain point, right? Like, what do I actually roll out? Because what we are doing is we're sitting at the edge, we're sitting in the critical path of the customer. And there you have to think about, well, how do we actually test this or um, even roll it out in the end? There was a huge concern at the beginning of the of the project and it came back to haunt us a few times in the in, in the process of, of, of actually implementing and rolling out this project. That's a whole other topic, of course. Uh, so if you wanted to say something else, we, we, can, we can first go with that. No, let's go for it. How, how do we think about roll out initially and where do we end up? 
Yeah. <clears throat> so if I remember correctly, we went through a few options. Um, so we basically, or the nice thing about edge computing is, well, you have one invocation, you have one request, and then flows through the system, more or less. <clears throat> so now we have our, like, users point their traffic to us, their request arrives, we do a bunch of things, we do these three layers of computing, and then we return a response. Now we, we thought, well, we have a bunch of end-to-end -end testing, of course, that, uh, that we run our system through, right? So we could build a system in parallel that simply mirrors the old JavaScript code path, and we run our end-to-end -end tests through that. And then we can maybe roll out a percentage of traffic over to the new system and see how it performs. That has, of course, a bunch of holes. And uh, what we said right in the very beginning, very naive, well, all of this is very complicated to make work, like traffic splitting or traffic validation, where you replay traffic through through a system. And uh, it doesn't look that complicated, right? Like, we, we understand the caching. We understand understand what went into the JavaScript implementation, and we have a lot of code already, right? So we thought, well, how about we uh, we build out, let's say, the easiest code paths first, uh, that is like the pass-through handler or, let's say, the playground handler. And then we roll that out, and like every traffic that, that goes through these code paths can just go through the new code path here, uh, because they're fairly risk-free, with big air quotes uh, right now. And uh, so we accepted a certain risk when rolling out that production traffic can break in a very brief time window. And so we, we tried that. We, uh, we tried uh, rolling out, for example, the pass-through handler, and it became clear very fast that end-to-end -end tests alone would not save us here because there's a lot of tiny differences that are extremely hard to spot and that are extremely hard to test for. Let's say minimal, like language differences between, between Rust and TypeScript where a simple Boolean check on a string is of course different in TypeScript than it is in Rust because in Rust you have to actually ask for if the string is empty and in JavaScript it will just be empty string will just be true, right? So there's a lot of like tiny differences that bit us along the way. And what happened is that we ran into, into downtimes that we really didn't anticipate and that really shattered our confidence in, uh, in the rollout itself that we wanted to do. So we, in the end, we went back to the drawing board and said, well, this is clearly not working, but only after we had a bunch of more uh, lessons to be learned in, in more handlers that we, that we wanted to roll out, right? So we can dive a little bit into that if if you want. Yeah, let's go for it. I guess the, the main lesson there is we do billions and billions of requests every month, right? And so no amount of end-to-end -end testing will cover all the corner cases of the entire internet going through your system. You know, weird things happen that we could not possibly anticipate, right? So on paper, it seemed like a great plan. Like let's test a lot of the stuff. Let's roll it out very carefully in small increments but it just didn't work for us, right? We really, we hit our face a few times on that one. Uh, yeah. So how do we get around it? What was the next step? So the next step was, oh, actually maybe Stefan, you want to talk to this? Sure. Like. I think the next step was accepting that the whole internet is just like piling up mistake on mistake and rolling with it. That's kind of like how, how this whole system works, right? The, the base foundation is, is so robust that you could make a lot of mistakes over the years and we are still with a functioning internet. So we have to accept the fact that the tiniest change can cause havoc. And I, I think I came back from vacation when that happened and was basically asked by them, like, hey, so we now decided we actually do want the traffic replay system. You want to take this part? I was like, hell yeah. 
I built a traffic replay system in my past job where we had like an authentication system, an internal one that needed to be rewritten and ported to have like a different way on how it functioned in the background. But like the complete thing should obviously work the same. Like users could have their own roles and permissions defined on how things work with our own constraint solver library. Everything needed to still work. And what we did was we just replayed the traffic outside of the hot path against the new system and expected the exact same decision to be made for the roles and, and permissions uh, evaluation. The cool part there was we could basically just execute more requests in the background without us caring because it was our own systems. For the traffic replay system here at Stellate, we had the problem in air quotes that like we can't just reach out twice to our origin because that basically means if the user origin receives twice the traffic and it might receive twice the mutations yeah they most likely are not impotent so we, like let's say an add to cart mutation or so and boom like now you have two times your shoes in, in the, uh, your shopping cart uh, you would most likely not want that so we figured out a way on how we can replay this traffic through the old and the new code paths but basically briefly storing it in the background we made sure we had like automatic like purging of that data store and that we don't really look at that then tried to calculate the diffing or the diffs between the old and the new code paths so we could make sure that we can sample traffic, see what are the differences, and then go into like our feedback loop of, okay, we look at a problem, figure it out, roll it out, sample it again, see what else comes up. And by that, we found a huge variety of like different issues that can like circle back into what I said initially. The internet is a weird place. Everybody does things slightly different. And being able to catch those before rolling out greatly increased our confidence again. I guess we can kind of go into some of the differences that we saw. You, you mentioned, Stefan, the internet is a weird place. You, you kind of did a presentation internally where you showed some of the funny moments of all the differences. So maybe some come to mind for you that the audience might enjoy. I think my personal most fun moment was our number diffing. For a bit of context, decimals and uh, floating point numbers in most programming languages are handled a bit weirdly, not at all that aligned between different systems. So you usually have some kind of like a like safe range to operate within. It's like uh, JSON, for example, doesn't require you to have a specific maximum size of a number, but it's usually accepted to not go over two to the power of 53, because that is where the JavaScript spec basically ends having precise integer numbers. And I think all the IE754 or so, basically like the go to floating point definition spec basically goes to that range. So if you take numbers above that, you basically fail. Also, how do you represent actually a floating point number compared to an integer, like a non-comma places number or decimal places number? And JavaScript, for example, says, well, we only have a number type. So if you have like a point zero, that's basically as if you wouldn't have any decimal place, right? So you can just like cut that off. We don't care. Most other systems have or languages have a distinction between a floating point number and a non-floating point number. And those are literally two different types. So a floating point number will always have a decimal place, even if it's just point zero. So we had users whose origin was sending us, let's say 42.0. And we got that into one of our layers, which was JavaScript, which parsed it. Then later on during the serialization was like, oh, it's like 42.0. We can just like serialize that as 42. 
So what we did for our users was basically altering their response, which is not really ideal if you're just like a pass-through proxy. But nobody ever like complained. It was just like accepted and, and apparently it didn't cause any problems. But now the question was, now that we're dealing with a type system that knows about the difference of an integer and a non-integer, how do we deal with that we would now add a point zero? So first of all, that showed up as a diff in our system. Here's the fun part. Our system, which displayed the diffs to us, apparently uses some part of JavaScript in the background because the difference between a 42 and a 42.0 was basically displayed as old value 42, new value 42, you have a difference, which was very confusing initially until we found out it's, it's about DC place that got stripped away. What would happen? Now we can include the point zero maybe somebody breaks because they ex expected to not get a float but an int there wherever they would you know like the internet is a weird place so just thinking about how a number is treated between two different systems and the impact it might have on our users was a very interesting and also somewhat funny situation to have and i really enjoyed that uh, it showed that we really did our due diligence this time by making sure nothing will fail and spoiler you will receive the point zero by now if i'm not mistaken no sorry you're you're we're stripping those right now okay so we actually decided to strip those. <laughs> nice yeah this is it's, it's a mess it's a mess uh, i hope at some point we will be able to solve that back correctly yeah, this is a, basically why we decided to strip the dot zeros because we really don't want to, or we want to be as transparent as possible in, in the migration process. And we, we aimed to be basically a one-click migration or even not giving the user a chance to click the button themselves, but just like swapping it over a gradient, uh, as a gradient in the background and the user would never notice, right? That was the initial goal. But the more we dove into the system, we also found bugs and issues on our old system that were just never uncovered in, in a certain way. And uh, the dot zero fractional strip may count as a bug, may not count as a bug, depending on the angle, but there was also stuff like cache uh, surrogate keys not being computed correctly, which would lead to your cache being basically purged for an entire type instead of uh, just a specific entity, and bugs like these, right? And uh, that was leading us to deviate from the original path and say, well, let's give the user a choice. Let's communicate openly while we're building a new system. And we want, uh, we have very minor changes for the users mostly, but we want to, to be open and transparent and communicate, hey, these are the changes. Maybe your test assertions will fail. Please don't panic. Uh, if you use a snapshot test, for example, and suddenly Stella gives you uh, something different, would be a mild case of, of something breaking uh, with the new system, right? So we planned out to really make like a transparent open transition write documents uh, for the exact changes that you can happen have a rollout period of a certain time where you can toggle back and forth between new system like have a nice ui for that yeah so this is how we got to the final shape of the rollout that is currently happening yeah we had always had this intention of making it transparent right and then right at the finish line we needed to make it a user option give them the control of moving over and I think the initial cause for that was one of those bugs that we found in the original product where we would leak type names, right? Yeah. And I guess there's like some context there around, you know, the way that our CDN works is that you give us a 
GraphQL request and we have to build a lot of cache keys based on that. But in order to know what cache keys to build, we want to know the type of the kind of the response, the types of the objects in the response, right? And so we add a lot of these underscore underscore type name definitions into the query so that we can then get this information. But we found cases where if customers had added their own type names in the, in the request, we would fail to remove all the type names that we added, right? And so we thought, well, that's pretty simple. We're, we're going to fix that in, in such an easy way. <laughs> and, uh, and then when we released it, uh, everything blew up. I guess either Stefan or, or Dom, maybe you can add some color to, uh, to our solution that we came up with and why that was a, an interesting change to make. Yeah, that was definitely one of the most interesting changes because it required us to actually do have a change in between the old and the new code paths, which we desperately wanted to avoid. I think we first found out about that when we saw diffs coming in, which were on the type name level, and we investigated what the old code path was like adding and removing. So basically how the code works is we add some type names to selection sets and then we track, okay, this path, we added a type name to the selection set. So when the response comes back, we can basically go into those paths and remove it again. That sounds like a very simple idea, even though we like one by one migrated that or ported that code to Rust. It even used some stuff that we wouldn't need to do on the Rust side just for the sake of keeping the code as aligned as possible, like also from how the code was written, not just from function-wise. Yet it led to like different paths being added and removed between the two code bases. So that was how we stumbled across it. While investigating it further, I found out that we sometimes keep some type name, like the underscore underscore type name fields inside of the response, even though you didn't request it in your query. And I found that to be very worrisome for us. As I said, we want to be like a, you know, kind of like transparent path through proxy. We shouldn't add data to your response that you didn't ask for, which is like one of the base primitives of GraphQL. It's like you request explicitly what you want to get. And we found that depending on the way your query was structured, you got more and more type names back that you actually didn't ask for. So we rethought the process a bit on how we add that and ended up at a solution where we thought it would be fine. And then we actually figured out at some point that it was now removing too many type names, which is also very awful because now you actually expect the field to come back and the underscore underscore type name is always non-nullable and yet it might be missing from your GraphQL query response. So that is actually even worse than sending you too much data back. And when we thought more and more about this, we came to the conclusion there is no good way at the point in time where we do this logic, where we can work with just the underscore underscore type name and the mix between user edit and our own edit uh, fields to the selection. So what we did instead was to rewrite it to a point where we add our own alias version of the type name to it. So whenever we don't find a user edit type name selection, we add our own alias type name selection to it. That allows us to be very, very confident that whenever we see an underscore, underscore, stellate, underscore, internal, underscore type name, that we can actually remove it. It's in fact added by us. So if you, for whatever reason, use that as your own alias version within your query, that might cause a problem. But I don't think anyone would ever come up with that name plus underscore, underscore is actually system 
reserved prefix, so you shouldn't use it. Um, so I made us kind of confident that we can use it as our own way of tracking. So we still do the thing where we track to which code path we have added it, which is just more performant and scanning over the whole result. And yeah, now we found like a solution. And that solution is, in my point of view, a good one to do, but it also now has a new set of problems coming with it that we figured out on the way. Maybe Dom, you want to take over for this? <laughs> Yeah, so we, we rolled that out thinking this uh, this fixes everything. And then suddenly we immediately ran into GraphQL alias limitation issues on our own API even. So we, we switched over our internal or the, the public API actually to use the new system and our own queries from the dashboard started breaking because we had an alias limit of, I don't know, low 15 or something or even lower. And suddenly we added all these aliases instead of just underscore underscore type name, right? So we immediately had to roll back, look at it again, and found out that there is a default in GraphQL Armor uh, by escape tools that is widely used uh, and probably other GraphQL security solutions out there or custom solutions that impose a, uh, a limit. So that is, of course, not great because the type name field doesn't really introduce overhead uh, to the server. So it's, it's, it shouldn't be treated the same way. It shouldn't count towards the total alias limit, but that's simply where we're at right now. So there's an opportunity for tooling to be improved. We opened a PR against uh, GraphQL Armor to improve that situation. But yeah, well, we have that limitation now. Same with query size limits. Suddenly the query is, is a lot bigger in terms of uh, decompressed characters. And that also causes issues with certain limitations that are imposed on on the server side right this is not solved really like we basically have to issue a warning right now that well this can happen please check if you if you use any of these uh, solutions but it is an interesting glimpse of GraphQL being seemingly simple in many ways but then uh, the landscape being very wild and, and being unpredictable in, in many ways when it comes to these kind of things yeah I think this was our maybe fourth or fifth or something like this release attempt and every single yeah. time we got to release there would always be something you know and <laughs> this was certainly one of those but in the end we were victorious right we managed to release it yeah so we managed to roll it out people have a toggle now and uh, if you're listening to this and you have a, a stellate uh, service you can now click a button that makes everything better at this point, maybe also an honorable mention to Marco. If you've ever interacted with Stite, you might have interacted with Marco so far already, our uh, customer success person, uh, who did a great effort in making sure that we get some insights on like, who is remaining on the old infrastructure, who already moved over, maybe even like, who had to move back, making sure we get uh, proper wording in place, asking all the hard questions of like, okay, like, is this now correct? Is this like all the things we need to mention? Like, what are the implications? What do I need to know and making sure that we also rethought our knowledge that we had and i think dom captured like a complete paper like what are the potential differences that was all yachted out together andreas you also contributed quite a bit to making sure we have a complete documentation page in place making sure that nobody feels left alone and then during the release marco was basically making sure that this gets communicated to everyone affected and is also now there helping for anyone who's like reaching out and we had some people who were then like a bit concerned about stuff and, and reached out to Marco and he could like calm him down, uh, help them out with some insights. And I think this is the, the hidden superpower in the background on making sure that everything will go smoothly from here. 
it's a very tricky balance. You know, we have a lot of responsibility as infrastructure providers to make sure that people are safe and that production traffic isn't impacted. And so we want to tell them everything that's wrong. But then at the same time, if we, you know, make it sound really scary, then people don't want to migrate, right? So it's like, it's, it's really a challenge to communicate the right level of severity for all these changes. Because in the grand scale of things, this is a benefit to everyone. There are minor differences that some people might be impacted with, but yet it is really important to make sure that you test everything before migrating. So a very interesting communication piece around that. I guess the question that remains is what's next? What is this gonna allow us to do? Maybe Thomas, do you wanna speak to that seeing as you're also working in product at times? I think in, in a sense, what we just did with one edge provider was just the first step into enabling actually useful things. I mean, we've, we've not talked about a lot of bugs that we fixed, but we didn't start this project to fix bugs. We started this project to come up with a architecture that allows us to build even more powerful uh, and advanced caching features. So I mentioned it way in the beginning, currently the secret sauce behind GraphQL caching and uh, with Stellate is rewriting post requests to get requests. This has its own set of limitations. And what we eventually actually want to do is create something like a, or use a cache API which fastly is building to allow us to have even more control over what we're caching and how long we're caching it, which might give us, uh, or which hopefully gives us the tools uh, into our hands to build even more powerful caching features, partial query caching. Basically, instead of either caching the whole response or nothing, we cache parts of the response and kind of split the query intelligently at the edge and only send the part to the origin that we don't have cached yet. Building something like this into our three-layer architecture uh, would basically be maybe not impossible uh, strictly, but but very, very uh, high effort and probably very, very complex. And what we did now with One Edge Provider was basically our first and our very big step towards exciting new things that we can build on top of that in the future. It is very exciting indeed. Yeah, so like one edge provider, we're basically down to two levels now. We went from three to two and a half, let's call it. And in the next couple of weeks, we're getting down to two, being entirely reliant on Fastly rather than Cloudflare and Fastly. And then, as you mentioned, getting theoretically down to one layer very, very soon. And every single time we remove a layer, things get faster, more reliable, and uh, hopefully also easier for us to build new stuff. So it's a, it's a really exciting direction. This is all we have time for today, sadly. This was a massively complex project spanning multiple years, and we could have continued for hours to get a complete picture of all the work that went into the migration. But this conversation was a great overview of what it took to get one edge provider out to customers. Thank you all for joining me for this conversation today. I really enjoyed it. Personally, I'm super excited for all the improvements to come and can't wait to talk to you all about it in a future episode of Build in Public. Thank you very much for listening. Have a good one. Thank you.